On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Jacqueline Peterson, Chief Executive Officer of Feeding Matters. With more than a decade of experience in program development, Jacqueline Peterson's broad knowledge of programming in the public and social sectors includes program and strategic initiative design, fund development, special events, grant writing, and community engagement. A system thinker and positive team builder, she uses transformational leading principles to develop energized and efficient work groups that influence significant organizational and systemic change for all affected by pediatric feeding disorder, such as the development of the expanded PFD Alliance. Jacqueline also manages Feeding Matters strategic partnerships with numerous professional associations, including ASHA, the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, and the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. We did this sort of as a a joint venture between uh, May is Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month and June being Dysphagia Awareness Month. So we thought this was a great time for the two of us to come together and have this conversation. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Looking for fees or video stroboscopy equipment? Whether you're an SLP wanting to start a mobile fees business or you're an SLP that works in acute care, PatCom Medical has the configuration for you. Offering portable fees and video stroboscopy systems, as well as an acute care cart that can house all of your equipment in order to easily transfer throughout a facility. They have what you need. To schedule an initial call, visit www.patcommedical.com. That's www.patcommedical.com. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Jacqueline. Good afternoon, Teresa. So so great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, excited about it. Yeah, so tell the people a little bit about yourself. So my name is Jacqueline Peterson. I am CEO of Feeding Matters. In my personal life, I'm a wife and a mother to two children, um, Charlie, who's three and a half, and my son, George, who is eight months old, who actually has pediatric feeding disorder as, as um, what I do for work. And so that was a, kind of a, a new thing for me to experience on the personal side. But professionally, uh, my background is in nonprofit management, healthcare innovation, and systems change. And I've been at Feeding Matters for 10 years, and I'm just so passionate about the advocacy work that we do for pediatric feeding disorder, supporting families and making sure families are at the table for research and um, a part of what we need to do in system change work. And then also supporting our professionals that we try to do at Feeding Matters as well. Awesome. I love that. So you have, yeah, so I didn't realize you'd been with the organization for 10 years and then you have a son now that is 
that as well. And I, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you know as much about my history too, but same thing. I, you know, I'm a speech pathologist and board certified in swallowing disorders and then had a son with major feeding and swallowing issues. So it's like, why is this happening to me? But yeah. Yes, who, who well, you're like, uh, well, and that's the thing is like, you expect a lot from yourself, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of how much awareness you have. But you're just mom too. And so you kind of realize, I just feel like professionals that are in this space that then have a child um, that struggles, it's a it's a little bit of its own journey sometimes too, because we put a lot of expectations on ourselves and it can be really um, challenging in a unique way. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think my biggest takeaway from everything we've been through is just, I, I will tell my son's therapist or my son's SLP, I'm like, talk to me like I'm mom, like forget that I know everything yeah. because it's a totally different dynamic. You know, it's like, sometimes I turn on my SLP brain and I, you know, think, okay, well, I know this researcher, I know this person, I know this technique, but to actually be the mom going through it, I'm like, I can't, I can't mix the two. I need to be mom today. So yeah, that's so true. That's a good way to approach it, I think. Yeah. And I'm still learning. I mean, he's eight months old. So we'll see where our journey takes us. All right. So so where should we start? Yeah. So um, I was excited to be able to talk with you because, um, you know, y- your audience and population, I assume, probably knows about pediatric feeding disorder and about feeding matters work. Um, but we always like to try to share a little bit more about what we're doing and ask that people are open to to joining us in the conversation, to providing feedback, to helping support our advocacy efforts, especially um, just because even if you're a professional who's in the mix and doing this all the time, there's so much more that we need to do to move and advance the field yeah. forward. And um, it's going to take all of us to make it happen. Yeah. All right. If you want to talk a little bit about, I think, was it last month that was PFD month? Oh, yeah. We could talk about PFD Awareness Month. Sure. Yeah. Because dysphagia month is still, I yeah. mean, yeah. a few days left. <laughs> it's dysphagia, dysphagia month too, which is a comorbidity to pediatric feeding disorder. And so, yeah, May is Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month. This past May was uh, our fifth year of it being PFD Awareness Month. And it's been the biggest year yet, which is a good thing that it keeps growing each year. And we really started PFD Awareness Month as a mechanism to help raise awareness of PFD um, because we were seeing, I mean, the whole journey of Feeding Matters in general is just to raise awareness of PFD, even before it was called PFD. But we didn't like the narrative that feeding struggles, feeding issues are symptoms of other problems. And so even after the publication of the consensus paper, Pediatric Feeding Disorder, where we were able to unite with other professionals and declare this a standalone condition, um, we realized that that was just the start of a long, a, a long effort. And so our, our focus right now is really raising awareness about pediatric feeding disorder so that even a general public member or even, a, a, you know, someone who's pregnant knows that as they have their child, they need to be aware of what is happening with feeding and being aware of some of the signs and symptoms so that we can really identify PFD as early as possible. So our goal in May being PFD Awareness Month is to reach out to those organizations, individuals, community members to really say, hey, this is a condition that not a lot of people know about, but it's more prevalent than autism and cerebral palsy. And it is a condition that's worth paying attention to. And, you know, what you can, this, here's how you can support other families going through this. Here's how you can help 
be uh, someone who helps identify it maybe, but oftentimes you probably know someone that's just suffering alone in silence and of their own homes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, sort of before all this awareness and especially in the last few years, you know, it was sort of like, oh, they're just a picky eater. Um, and, and that was sort of just the narrative. Either they they had an actual medical diagnosis, like you said, CP or autism, or they were just a picky eater and there was nothing to sort of capture the rest of the continuum. So talk to me a little bit about what were you guys, were you guys part of this consensus paper? Talk to me a little bit about the dynamic there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I can have, we'll dive into the history a little bit. Okay. So um, Feeding Matters has been around for 16 plus years and our fa- founder, Shannon Goldwater, had triplets. Um, who were born three months premature, all struggled with feeding. And even though they were preemies, you know, uh, Shannon had a certain expectation of what their medical journey might look like. But the feeding side of that journey was something that completely um, just shook her to her core um, because she just didn't know how to get the support that she needed. And she honestly didn't have the professionals that could help her get the support that she needed. And she traveled all over the country realizing, you know, no one's on the same page about this. We need a lot more in research. We need a lot more in education. And so what she realized was is we can say cancer or you can say autism. And someone who has had no personal experience, no professional experience, knows what you're talking about. But when you say, my child has difficulty eating, you think, oh, they're just a picky eater that's just, you know, won't eat their vegetables. And so the condition wasn't being taken seriously. And when something isn't doesn't have an identity, it, we can't then do all the other things that we need to do with it. We can't research it. We can't teach it as much in school. And so what we did as an organization is we got together professionals from across the nation and actually across the world to come together to declare this a standalone condition. So Pediatric Feeding Disorder, it's a publication that came out in JPGN in 2019. And it really, you know, talks about how feeding, pediatric feeding disorder is where a child may not be eating appropriate for their age. And there is dysfunction in the medical, nutrition, psychosocial, and especially the feeding skill realm. And it can be any combination of those four domains. And those domains were built off the ICF framework to really make sure we're looking holistically because feeding does involve so many different systems interacting. And so that publication came out in 2019. And then we were able to partner with some other organizations and bring this forward to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and get PFD to be a standalone code that can be diagnosed. Um, And so in October 2021, that's when the official PFD code went live. Um, So you know, we're still very early on in this effort, um, but that's why awareness is really important too. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I just, I have so many, so many comments, follow-up things to say. So yeah, my son was born in 2016. I think what was so interesting was he was in the NICU for 15 days and the only reason he was still there was he just wouldn't eat. And there was nobody, there wasn't an SLP there that worked on feeding. I, I was just, you know, I was pumping all night long, plus reading all the research while he was in the NICU. And, you know, it was just like, well, so what is this? Like, what's, you know, and and there just nobody could tell me, well, he'll just figure it out is what everybody said. And it was just, I mean, he was underweight. He never, never hit the growth curve. Like, I mean, the first year of his life was just awful. Just, I mean, mm-hmm. ounces in him was like a big accomplishment. So 
It's just my mommy heart is like so happy to hear this is finally recognized because I think it's, you know, now it's getting kids so much more early intervention. So we have so many more SLPs in the NICU that are helping these kids out. So, oh, that's wonderful. So, so you guys got the consensus paper written. We now have the code, which we all know about. So what's, what's sort of next? Like, do you just say our work here is done or like what, what's, <laughs> what's next? Well, first of all, I am so sorry that you felt so alone in that scenario, because I think that's really what we're not wanting for our families. And so ideally, as we can grow and get more professionals in this space and more research, honestly, because there, there isn't a lot of research in feeding. And so that really leads us down to the road to what's next. Um, feeding Matters takes an innovative and systemic approach to the way that we do things. And so the, you know, the catalysts to all of the system changes that need to happen for the field are really, you know, looking at it from an education perspective, looking at it from an advocacy perspective and looking at it from a research perspective. And so having the consensus paper and the coding, that's really just the foundation. And then we need to build on that. And so there, um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in creating a specialty pathway for professionals interested in feeding, whether that's a, a speech language pathologist, occupational therapist, but some, some pathway to encourage development of those, that skill set, um, and that specialty pathway because it's just not, it's not available in school. And so many, many, and I'm sure many of your audience has had to just like gather this information up by themselves and go to this course, go to that course, hopefully go to Feeding Matters courses, but it, that's not sustainable in the long run. And so really thinking about what we need to do in education, how we need to create these specialty pathways, how we need to encourage multiple disciplines to be able to work together, I think is something that we're also really interested in, in, in finding what's going to work best. Um, because as we've talked about, PFD has all of these different domains interacting, but it can be really unrealistic to think that you're going to get a discipline, you're going to get a physician and a dietitian and a feeding skill domain specialist and a psychosocial specialist all in the same area. And like, sure, there are our are, are teams out there, but our rural communities and our communities out there or in home health, it's just really difficult to get all of those do domains in place. And so we're really looking at what from a systems perspective do we need to be thinking about in the education space? In the advocacy space, this is where awareness really comes into play because so much of what we need to do in the advocacy space, awareness is kind of the barrier to it. So we have awareness as a barrier in insurance coverage. We have awareness in a barrier as it relates to research funding being allocated for PFD. Um, and so in our strategic plan, at least, awareness is kind of what we're doing for the first few years or like a heavy effort in awareness. And then we'll be doing a little bit more legislative influence as it relates to government awareness, government resources, and um, different research dollar allocations for PFD research. And just so much more in the, the policy space for PFD because insurance coverage, while we've got the code, we definitely need to do more as it relates to helping insurance companies understand what PFD is, how to pay for treatment, what treatment should be paid for, um, all of that. Um, and then on the research side, there is, 
a really positive movement in terms of more and more research coming out about feeding. Um, but I think we still have so much more to go. And especially from where feeding matters is at, it's been interesting because we see a lot of research happening, but we also see a lot of areas in research being left behind. There is not as much of a family voice in research. There is not as much of a community voice in research. And that is where the majority of feeding and treatment for feeding is happening. And so we're really interested in making sure we're igniting research. We're ensuring that research is happening, but that it's also families are sharing what's important for them, what outcomes are, are mattering to families. Um, and so it's really that marrying of the family perspective, as well as um, where we need to head with research and how research can guide the field overall. Because we do, we need we need more research, but we need research that makes um, sense for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that so much. I I recently started my PhD. I'm in my second year of my PhD oh. school now, actually. And I, I've changed my concentration about four times. I think I'm in an overlap of three different converse, or concentrations at this point. But one, one of the things is, is healthcare leadership, because I'm, you know, I've gotten more and more passionate about at the policy level, like you were saying, and, and everything that I've gone through with my son and everything I've been through with different insurance companies and different therapies and schools. And, you know, it, it has to just be a whole systemic change. But, you know, it's also fascinating. And, and you talk about it. And it was the reason I wrote my book last year, I wrote, you know, so you're having trouble swallowing, but you know, I didn't touch as much on pediatric just because I don't have as much experience on it. But from the family level, I just know what it's like to be an SLP, but then also go through this from from the family perspective, like you were saying. So one of the things for my PhD was I was like, well, you know, maybe I do want to get more into pediatric mm. research. And so I applied to be in that concentration and they told me that I didn't meet the requirements. And I was like, well, why? And they're like, well, you don't have enough experience in pediatric feeding. And I was like, but who does? So I don't, I don't know. So <laughs> I would love to get more involved in the research of that because I think I have a lot to, to offer both professionally and personally, but I'll take my services elsewhere, I guess. <laughs> That's actually really surprising that they declined that because I mean, there really isn't a lot of Well, that experience. was my rebuttal. I was like, who does have a lot of experience? in this. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we, that's exactly what we try to do at Feeding Matters is figure out like, what are the barriers to research in general and how can we try to reduce those? And I mean, we have an ideal list that grows longer each day. And so we are always trying to do more for our community of professionals and community of families. Um, but that is definitely one that is, is a hard nut to crack is there, it, it's this uh, chicken or an egg scenario of like, there needs to be more research, but how can we get more research? Um, so hopefully, and, and other people are working on it besides us, but um, uh, we, we really, I'd love to continue talking about that at a different time too. Because I think <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, have brain, have experiences, you know, will work, but yeah. It's like, it's like that, uh, like, like, uh, we want an entry level job with 10 years experience. Yeah. Type right. Of right. Metaphor. Right. Right. I was like, how do I learn this if I'm not, if I <laughs> don't get to learn it? So anyways, mm -hmm. <laughs> all right. I digress. Okay. Where, let's see, where do you want to go now, Jacqueline? What? So I think the word in feeding or phrase in feeding that's thrown around a lot or in any profession in the medical space is evidence-based practice. And I think it's, especially in feeding, it can be really challenging because there is that lack of research that we talked about. And so what Feeding Matters did recently is um, we got our PFD Alliance Ex Executive Council together to really 
determine what a definition for evidence-based practice looks like in feeding. And so we have we have um, this definition, which is taken from uh, some ASHA, some UNC resources, but essentially it is evidence-based practice is the integration of clinical practitioner experience, external evidence, internal evidence, and client caregiver and family unique perspective values and cultural beliefs. And we, you know, on our on our site, there's a graphic as well, but it's really important for us to be able to talk about what is evidence-based practice because there's the research that's out there, but then there's also this this marrying that needs to happen between what a clinician is experiencing, both in their their everyday life, as well as what they're experiencing in particular with the family. And so as we talk about how important it is to listen to families, um, that needs to be taken into consideration when we're thinking about what does the treatment pathway look like for a family and what are we asking a family to do in treatment and, and what are the expectations that we have on that family. And so, um, having this definition, having this graphic, I think is a really great place to start because we also kind of go and and I encourage everybody to go take a look at it, but you kind of have questions for families to consider as well as questions for professionals to consider when we think about EBP. Yeah. EBP is thrown around everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that so much. And I'm, I can't wait to check that out, to be honest, because that, that was something that I became so passionate about only after I was going through it because I was sort of one of those like research is everything research, you know, if we don't have the research, it doesn't exist. I, I was one of those people. And, and I, I no problem admitting that until everything happened with my son and what the research said versus what I was experiencing did not align or what I was experiencing. There wasn't research to support it. So in that situation, what do you do? Right. And, you know, I was just, I was super grateful to have SLPs that, you know, they're like, we don't really know his condition. There's nothing much out there about his condition, but you know, from our experience with other kids with similar characteristics, this is what we found successful. And, you know, I'm just so appreciative to clinicians that come in with that very global approach, right? Like we're not going to have a cookbook recipe for every single PFD and, and every kid presents with so many different conditions and characteristics. And, and I think that's just something that's really, I think we're doing a better job in, in education now, but I think it's something that for the longest time was not given the weight that it should be, because there's so much as far as the, the clinician experience and, and the family that really should guide the treatment. And, and I know from our experience too, there was, we did have a few therapists that suggested some things that I was like, that just isn't going to work for my family. Like mm-hmm. as much as that might be what you think is best. Like if I think of how our family dynamic works, like it, that does, just doesn't work, you know, and, and not like I'm trying to be difficult. It just there's got to be a different way, right? So I think there, there's just such this beautiful marriage of how can you work best with a family and and come up with this approach that's going to support them and not feel like a burden or a hindrance. Because for me, we had so many other therapies to focus on too, that it was just like, okay, it was almost like every day felt like therapy all day. Yeah. You have to choose which one you're going to focus on. Yeah. What point do I just get to like be a mom and bond with my kid, you know? So as much as it can just be integrated into that natural home feeding environment um, and everybody's having these open conversations like that, that might not work that let's try this. That might work. So yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful you guys have that. And I can't wait to check it out because I think it's, I think it's something that's just not talked about as much as it should be. Yeah. And it really isn't. And, and, and the challenge is that we do need the research to get there, but that's why we need families and clinicians yeah. experiences yep. to guide the research um, but yeah, it, it offers this great space to be able to say, 
things aren't working. We need to change. You know, a, a child with PFD, it looks so different from another child with PFD. It's a heterogeneous population. And that's also what makes the research really challenging. But I think these are things that we can overcome, but we need space for that. And we need space for the family to be able to say, this is what works for us. And you're right, like that's not going to work for us sometimes. And I think, you know, because PFD is, has a comorbidity with 300 other diagnoses, you do often have families that are juggling multiple therapies and you have to choose what's going to work best. What's, is it time to focus on that? Um, so there's also this like readiness piece too for families. Um, you know, we can't dive into everything right away and that's okay too. It's just having that space for grace, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not the fire hose approach. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) No, no. And we even realize that with families that we support too, because I, I encourage anybody that has that is treating, feeding, or has families that that needs support to to share our information with them because we offer a power of two coaching program that really you know sh- shows that support works for families and so families can call us and be able to talk to a parent who's been there before and because these families are often hearing you know, well-meaning advice from from grandparents from friends about how to get them to eat yeah. <laughs> um, it really doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help. Um, it, but helps is talking to someone who's been there before and who can offer some information that, you know, shoulder to cry on, um, that ear to listen. And so, but in that same program, what we've learned is that families, each family is different in terms of the amount of information they're, they're able to take on at first. So some family may not be ready to hear, oh, this might be PFD. We just have to talk about feeding, but another family wants like all of the information about PFD, all of the tests, all of the, all of everything else. So it really is meeting a family where they're at. Yeah. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that, bringing that up. I think I've, I've talked about that before. It's just, you know, when I was in the thick of it with my son, there were some days that I just, I could not listen or receive anything else, you know, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I wasn't being mean or I wasn't, you know, saying no, it was just, no, no not today, you know? And, and so I sort of set that groundwork with the therapists, you know, just ask me if today's a day that I might be able to receive more information. And I'll be honest, like, you know, sure. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Or some days I'm just like, no, I can't handle anything else today. Let's, let's table that till next week. And, you know, I think that's such a powerful skill for therapists to have because it's, you know, it's not, don't take it personally because it was nothing personally. It was just me trying to navigate the situation for what it was on top of all the other, you know, therapies that I said we had to deal with. So, yeah, I, that's so true as a skill for therapists too, because I think so often we focus on the tactical aspects of uh, clinical work. And that's like, do you understand the swallow? Like the the true like medical side of the work, but there's so much in the critical thinking, the soft skill, the relationship side of the work that you don't get a lot of support on. And it takes a while to hone and practice those skills because I mean, it sounds like you were, you were at least at a place where you could set a boundary and say, no, I'm not ready to receive that. But I even think of families who maybe had a hard time saying, you know, how they were really feeling. And unless someone's reading those signs and can, can understand where the family's at, it, um, yeah, it's just, that's the importance of, of marrying kind of the clinical and the relationship and it's just all the holistic side of everything, honestly. 
which is, you know, feeding is just so, I mean, we've all talked about this, but it's just such a quality of life and, and, and ritualistic, you know, traditional practice for so many families. So it's, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot heavier than just saying, Hey, why don't you try this technique at the table? You know, it's in that, that doesn't work for my family at, you know, big Italian Sunday dinner, that's not going to happen, you know, so how can you weave in those strategies with the family's traditions and and make them work together? And yeah. Yeah. Cultural aspects are so important in, in feeding and any feeding therapy. Um, you're right. It is so much heavier than let's work on your knee that yeah. just was replaced. Um, it's, it's a, it's a therapy that has to take into account more than just the patient their environment, their family, their main primary caregiver, feeder, parent. Um, and it can be, yeah, very heavy. And we can't ignore those cultural considerations at all. They, they're a huge part of, of the feeding journey. Yeah. It's like, I hate to say it, but it's almost like I feel like a prerequisite for this type of work is like just really high emotional intelligence. And I just mean that because it's just, you're you're working with an entire family. You're not just working with an isolated kid situation, you know, it's an entire family dynamic that you have to sort of work with and not take things personal. So, yeah, that's actually a really great point because I thought of like, you know, we're trying to figure out like best core competencies and how to like build specialty pathways and some of that and emotional intelligence comes into play. But I think to your point of it being a prerequisite, it's a really good filter for if how you're going to do at this work, because it can be very challenging if you if you don't have a high EQ like it's it's just going to be very challenging yeah and it's just you're going to have a lot of families that are turned off by your approach you know because if you just try to come in there with you know this is what we're going to do and this is what your meal times look like now you know that just those are a lot yeah of and of- some families want that and and that and knowing when when a family wants that versus when a family doesn't yeah yeah and, and being able to adapt and be a chameleon in that sense may yeah. may be important. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about a little bit about sort of insurance challenges, right? Like we, we now have this code that just came out in 2021. You think everything's going to be rainbows and butterflies now that we have this code, but we all know things with insurance don't always work that way. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this because I think what's also happening too, is there's this sort of world of the wild, wild West where it's like, you know, there's providers that are going through, you know, Medicaid insurance. And there's also some that are just doing private pay. There's some that are just doing coaching. There's sort of like a myriad of support out there, which isn't a bad thing, but I think it just blurs the lines a little bit. So yeah, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I do think that that blurs the lines a little bit. I It'd be interesting to see why someone chose what any of those different mechanisms. Yeah. I think it was be, because of how they had to set up their practice based on their revenue models and how challenging it may have been to contract with different insurance companies. And that just kind of goes to show how difficult it is, whether you have PFD as a code or not. Um, but with PFD as a code, uh, it, you know that was the first big step. I think the second, maybe harder step is to really integrate it into insurance. We still see a lot of medical directors, medical officers at insurance companies that don't truly understand what PFT is. And then the result of that is often lots of denials or culture of um, mistrust around what feeding therapy looks like. Um, and I think it, it's a challenge when I think about it from the insurance company's perspective to really think about all of the different options for feeding therapy and what a family is going through and um, 
you know, so I get why they maybe mistrust what needs to happen as it relates to treatment for PFD. So what we try to come at this with is an awareness and an education perspective. We say that, you know, we just need to continue to reach out to insurance companies. And we I actually encourage anyone listening, if, if you are open to, to working with us to do that, that's something that we're really interested in doing is having these individual listening sessions, as well as meetings with insurance companies to say, what are you seeing? What's going on? Are there things that we can do to, to fix and alleviate this? Because the work that we've done to really think about what needs to happen in insurance, it's anywhere from individual company policy changes need to happen to, you know, even simpler than that, just awareness of PFD within the company itself will help a little bit. We've seen that work to even bigger and more challenging truly like legislation changes that require coverage for things and require that. I I hesitate to go that direction just yet because the research on treatment for PFD is still not, not there as much. And so you don't want to require coverage for certain things and then kind of narrow the treatment options for families when there's already a long wait list for everybody. So that's why what we try to do right now, at least where it makes sense for us to be in the space for Feeding Matters to be is Let's work on being an awareness and education tool for insurance companies. And we can partner with them if they're having challenges with this, because I think we have a lot to learn from them as well as we need to inform them about what we're seeing. And, you know, I, we've we've heard of insurance companies that didn't even necessarily know about the four domains. And so if you are an insurance company and you're just paying for feeding therapy and paying for feeding therapy, but you never really looked at did this case and this patient, do we know if there's something medical going on in our, before trying feeding therapy? If we have an undiagnosed like EOE, feeding therapy is not going to do anything. And so even just an awareness of the four domains can help in that regard. So that's where we've started. We hope to make in even more improvements as the years go on, but um, I think eventually we would like to see more legislation or insurance coverage in that regard. It's just not something we're pursuing at this time because of where the research is with PFD. Yeah. So you got you do you do have a registry up on your site? Is that what you said for? Yep. Yep. So um, on our website, feedingmatters.org, there are a lot of different resources and tools available for both professionals and families. Um, professionals, I think, would be interested to see uh, there's a toolkit on PFD available, and that has things like a when to refer rack card. So if you're worried about a family, it's got a um, quick screen questionnaire and then like lots of different signs and symptoms in each of the domains. It has a lot of information about PFD in general. Um, and then we also have resources in the form of providers that are listed on our website. So this is helpful for families as well as professionals. Sometimes it can help to point a family in the right direction if you don't feel like uh, what they need is outside your, if you feel like what they need is outside your scope of practice, or if you are someone who is treating feeding and want to be listed on the provider directory, that's another good tool for for you as well. Um, This is a provider directory that has over 800 providers across the world that treat PFD. And we're working on, we have a lot of feeding therapists and that's the goal is to continue to get more of those, but we also want to start including some of the other domains too, so that it can be a little bit easier for families to kind of put their own team together. Unfortunately, you know, 
families are having to do that that medical home sometimes when and managing the different subspecialties and therapies and those interactions. But hopefully, having per- access to providers may help make that a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful that you that you do have that because I know my there was one therapist for my son that it just came, she totally came by word of mouth, you know, it was somebody that was like, Oh, you know, a friend of mine has a really great therapist. Let me connect with her. And she, she's still actually working with us. She's amazing. And I said to her, I was like, where are you marketing? Like, do you have a website? Like, I swear I Googled everybody in this town and she's like, no, I don't do any of that stuff. And I'm like, how are, how are families going to find you then? Like, she is so amazing at what she does. And, you know, I, she's like, I just wish there was someplace I could just like plop my name up and I didn't have to like mess with a website or anything. So, you know, I, I think things like, like what you're doing with the registry and things are just wonderful for therapists that don't want to. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, and and honestly, it's helpful for families too, because Feeding Matters has a certain philosophy of making sure families are included Mm -hmm. and any provider on that provider directory should agree to that philosophy by being listed. It's, it's part of their like self-submitting agreeing to it. Um, And so at least, it's an open source directory. So honestly, we don't vet the providers that go on the directory, but it is a great resource and a place to start. Yeah. Um, Cause like you said, there's not really a great place to start when you're trying to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad she's working out. That's wonderful. I know. I know. <laughs> she's like, I just don't like that internet thing. I was like, Oh my, Oh my goodness. Okay. I get it. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, let's yeah, let's sort of talk about one final topic here and, and sure. let's get into healing feeding trauma. I know this is probably a lot to unpack, but uh where do you want to start with this? <laughs> you know, we had our keynote at our last conference um on healing feeding trauma. And I think with I don't know if it was the timing of the pandemic or just the space that we were in as as it relates to uh, the clinical medical world and its evolution, but mental health being such a a more prevalent focus around things, and I think specifically uh, that the trauma that that is is everyone undergoes. I think professionals experience that as well as families, um, but what we talked about at the conference was really healing that feeding trauma. And so what we do at Feeding Matters is really try to take a trauma-informed approach. And I think there's not a great, at least right now, there's not always a great recognition that there is trauma involved with feeding. I think it can be any number of different things, but it's often for a family that's had a journey uh, can be, you know, several months to several years of experience after experience that is hard and challenging and often traumatic. It can be really difficult to untangle all of that. And I think um, because of how like tactile feeding is, it's involving smells and the touch um, I often think that families and most often parents and caregivers too experience re-triggering scenarios time and time again. And that can be a huge piece of the feeding treatment journey. And I think unless professionals and clinicians have an awareness of the unraveling the trauma from the past and not trying to re-trigger the trauma in the future that we're doing our families a disservice. 
there's so much their families have gone through. And I think even as you've shared your story, I'm sure you carry a lot from the NICU and from your journey with, you know, I I think that we all kind of carry a lot. And so we definitely want to have an awareness for that to try to mitigate any future impact. Um, and it's a lot to unravel and, 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 you know, we'll take often for families and parents and caregivers, especially a professional to do that intervention. But I think it's a really important topic to just have an awareness of and to make sure we, we make space for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in our care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that because I think it was probably the most traumatic thing I'd ever been through, you know, and, and I think just for me and for my husband and and the rest of our family and my son, you know, there's still some times that it's just like, I just don't want to feed him because it's just, I know how it's going to go, or I know it's not going to go well, or it's going to take an hour. Or he's going to get upset and frustrated. You know, it's not, it wasn't fun for anybody for a long time. Right. And, you know, there, there are so many things too, for my son that are triggering and traumatic. So, you know, I think it's a total, you know, it would be a total injustice to not acknowledge that this is a real, real impact. Um, to, to treatment and, and improvement. Yeah. And I think for families, especially, I, I think what we've seen is even when a child maybe moves on from their PFD and, and get, and is able to enjoy mealtimes again, we see that the parents and caregivers still need the support. Mm-hmm. And through our family support programs, we're here for families at the beginning of their PFD journey, or even after their journey is over and families are still struggling. Um, because you remember all of that, your, your son or, or whoever's child may not remember it as, as they, they move on and they have more enjoyable meal times. Um, we hear families that talk about even turning on the oven and what that used to do, um, to their child's reaction, all of the different triggers that go along with it, that often stick with parents and caregivers in the long run. And so I think, I guess the message I would share with clinicians beyond making space for that experience and honoring that is to also encourage if you you are seeing a parent or caregiver who may need more support to to go get that support. I think it's so funny because as as moms specifically, you know, we will do whatever we can for our children and you know bring them to the pediatrician and all these things, but often we're not doing that for ourselves. And I think our child's professional caregivers can see it on us. And unless they're sharing that with us, we may not know that from for ourselves too. So I don't know if that would just be what I would share with your audience too. Do, do you guys have parent resources in from that aspect on the site as well? You know, we need to do more in that space. Yeah. Um, we really are trying to uh, revamp our, fa- our family support programs to support families more long term. Um, we we do take a trauma informed approach with our family support programs, but um, we need what we're trying to figure out is like how to get more access to different mental health support for families beyond just the program itself. Yeah. So honestly, not yet, but the idea is that hopefully more, yeah. more and more to come. Yeah. No, like I said, thank you for acknowledging it. That's, that's step one. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Jacqueline. This has been an, an amazing conversation. Is there anything, anything else you want to cover? Anything else we didn't add? 
No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about PFD and Feeding Matters and all that we're trying to do. I encourage everyone to go check us out or follow us on social. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Teresa, and learning about your journey. And I just thank you for having us on. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.